Okay, so today I'm joined by Emmanuel Hahn and Andrew Kung in New York. Good evening, guys. How's it going? Good, good. It's going well. How are you? Not bad. Just Thursday morning in Hong Kong. Got the whole office to myself. Can't complain. Nice. Nice. <laughs> so just to jump right in here, uh, could you tell, I guess, the people listening uh, who you guys are, where you're from, and what you do? Go for it, Emmanuel. Okay. <laughs> um, so my name is Emmanuel Han. Um, I'm currently a commercial photographer in Brooklyn, New York. Um, my quick background is I grew up in uh, a couple of countries in Asia. So Singapore, Cambodia, South Korea. Um, my parents are from South Korea. And I moved to the States for college. Um, I went to NYU for business school in 2010, graduated 2014, um, worked in the tech startup space for about two years before um, leaving that world behind to become a freelance photographer full time. And I've been working um, as a commercial photographer for two years now. Awesome. And Andrew? Yep. Great. So my name is Andrew. Um, I was born and raised in San Francisco. Um, and like Emmanuel, I also went to undergrad business school. I uh, went to school right across the bay in uh, Berkeley. And after Berkeley, I also worked in the tech world. Um, so I worked at LinkedIn for about three and a half years doing strategy and analytics before making the jump to full-time freelance photography. Um, so I've now been in New York for about two years um, and have done photography for just one year. I actually just hit my one-year mark um, this month. So I've been doing um, a lot of commercial kind of editorial type shoots here in New York City. Cool. Well, I guess your guys' most recent project, uh, the Mississippi Delta Chinese would fall into that category. Um, so I was wondering if you guys could tell me just a little bit more about what that project is kind of in a nutshell. I can talk about the project um, and then maybe like for the later questions, Andrew can go over the process. Um, so the project, um, the Delta Chinese, or sorry, the Mississippi Delta Chinese um, is an audiovisual narrative um, experience. And so what that means is it's a storytelling effort that centers around this Chinese community and the Mississippi Delta. Uh, and for background, um, these Chinese have lived in the Mississippi Delta for over a hundred years. Um, there is um, a lot of kind of uh, historical um, evidence proving that the Chinese immigrated to, to this area um, from even before um, the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed. And a lot of them came as laborers. And over time, this community grew um, and we sort of discovered about their existence and thought it was such an interesting uh, community because people tend not to associate um, Chinese people or just Asian Americans in general to, to be living in the rural South. Um, and the Mississippi Delta is sort of this quintessential area that people think of when they think of the rural South. Um, so the project itself, um, the way it's laid out, the website um, features photography and an audio component that tells the stories of um, currently, I think, seven different people in the Mississippi Delta. And uh, it kind of um, takes a first-person view on what it's like to live in the Delta. Um, some of them are more historical, um, some of them are more anecdotal, but they all kind of um, explain what um, being Chinese means um, living in the Mississippi Delta. So just for people who aren't American, myself included, uh, what region is the Mississippi Delta? Like what states are in there? 
Um, so the Mississippi Delta kind of refers to this general area where um, where the Mississippi R- River runs through. And so there are a bunch of uh, states that uh, the river goes through. Um, I, I don't think I can remember all of those states, but um, Tennessee, Arkansas, Mississippi, Louisiana. These are basically um, a bunch of states that have um, the Mississippi River running through it and a lot of the um, economy and uh, activity in, in those areas are agricultural and depend on the river um, for for whatever is produced there. Okay, I see. So I'm just referencing your guys' project uh, website, the summary on there. And basically you guys were trying to re-examine and maybe even challenge some of these existing narratives about Asian Americans. So I'm curious, uh, could you tell me a little more about what made you guys decide to just leave New York and go into the Delta? Yeah, I'm sure I can answer that one. So I think it all started at um, Emmanuel's apartment. We were talking more about personal projects that we wanted to explore because we've been doing more commercial work with larger brands. And so we wanted to take on a deeper meaning um, to the projects that we're working on. And as Asian American photographers, we were very intrigued about kind of looping in our ethnic backgrounds to actually our craft of photography. Um, and so I brought up to Emmanuel and I said, oh, like my parents were, my parents met in North Carolina. My dad was stationed in the army and my mom went to school in South Carolina. And I thought that was interesting as Asians, especially in the previous generation, how that was kind of acclimating um, to the South and being kind of a minority group. And as I brought this up, I also said, oh man, I wonder how it's like to actually shoot the Southern rural landscapes. As a photographer, that would be pretty amazing. And so as I brought this up, Emmanuel kind of almost connected the dots together. And he was like, oh, what if, what if we did a dual project together on Asian Americans in the deep rural South? Um, and so as we kind of simmered on that idea, we were like, oh, well, let's look at all the states that we can kind of potentially explore Um, And so we basically found um, a bunch of Asian American organizations in different states from Atlanta to Alabama to Mississippi. Um, And I think what kind of narrowed it down to the Mississippi Delta was we saw this one NPR article um, on this very tight knit community um, in the Delta. And what helped propel that was as we started doing all this outreach, one person from uh, an organization or association Asian American Association in Mississippi reached out and said, hey, I know this um, girl named Frida Kwan and this guy named Gilroy Chow, and I can potentially introduce you to them. Um, And so as she introduced us to Gilroy and Frida, we basically started building this kind of relationship with them where where they got very bought into the idea um, of our project. And they became then our champions of the project. Um, where they basically introduced us to almost 20 people in the community. Um, And so from that point on, it was basically just kind of building that relationship and kind of building that trust. Um, Because especially as Asian Americans in a area that is not um, too diverse, uh, too diverse for them, for outsiders to come in, they have a certain level of skepticism almost um, when it comes to outsiders coming in and trying to tell their story. 
what kind of tension is that? Um, like, what kind of suspicion is there? Because you guys are both Asian American yourselves. I just want to know what kind of points of tension there could be. Yeah, I think it was two things. Um, I think one is that previously uh, there was a lady who, and multiple, I think, instances where um, people in the more documentary field um, producing more documentary videos or pieces on the community have painted the community in a very kind of negative light um, and maybe not kind of piecing or together the Mississippi, Mississippi Delta Chinese as people who necessarily contributed to the society um, or to their communities. And so that happened a few different times. When you say negative, what do you mean by that? Yeah, Emmanuel, do you want do you want to expand a, a little bit on the? Yeah, I think um, so. With uh, this specific uh, documentary filmmaker, um, they had an agenda in mind, and they uh, kind of portrayed uh, these Mississippi Chinese as kind of like backwards, like poor. You know, a lot of them were operating grocery stores, so like you know, not doing very well. And uh, initially, the community had welcomed the, this kind of like documentary producer because they thought it was going to be something that was, you know, um, beneficial to the community. But it ended up kind of like hurting them uh, in that the, the documentary filmmaker just wanted to kind of portray uh, the Chinese living there in this very kind of like negative light, um, you know, where they were kind of like a drain to society, a burden to society. They weren't like working in fields that were prestigious. And so a lot of people ended up <laughs> becoming very wary. Uh, and so when we reached out to them, a lot of them were asking us, um, you know, what is your agenda? What are you trying to do with these photos? Um, and, you know, another question being like, um, are you trying to make money off of like our stories? Um, and I think the other kind of uh, the the other factor to consider was that um, we were warned by people also that uh, people in the rural South tend to just be more suspicious of people who are coming from outside. Um, and I, I think you can certainly understand from their perspective, you have um, just like two city boys showing up, uh, claiming that they want to do a story. I think it's only natural that they would have their suspicions. Um, they really wanted to know like what we were trying to do, how we were trying to tell their story. Um, and, you know, like kind of like what, what the end product would be, they would ask us, um, are you trying to put it up in a gallery? Uh, what are you trying to do? And I think a lot of the times we had to speak to them, just explaining to them that we had a personal stake in these stories, that we were not trying to portray them in any like agenda that we had, but more just kind of like taking what they, what they were telling us at, at face value and trying to tell a really good story. Um, and, and so, like, I guess this is jumping the gun a little bit, but uh, we kind of, like, finished the project and we sent it over to two of them to, to, to view. And one of the things that they responded with was, like, hey, you, you guys um, portrayed us really fairly and um, really objectively, and we're really thankful for that. And so I think going into the project, we knew um, we weren't trying to kind of, like, fit a narrative to them. I think it was more of, like, a discovery process where we wanted to go there and just sit down with them and talk to them for, like, an hour and really understand what um, their experiences were like. That's actually a really good point you bring up about, like, city people coming into the countryside. And I'd like to talk about that later. But looking at your website and I look at the photos they're really, really well done in the sense they're down to earth and they're, you know, they're super honest. I just want to know how you guys went about achieving that aesthetic. I think it's two parts. I think from sort of like a tools perspective, like what um, 
we chose to shoot the project in. Um, we very early on decided that we wanted to shoot the entire project on film and not on digital. And um, one of the reasons is just that we feel like film has this very kind of classic looking feel to it. And it's also kind of not really beholden by trends necessarily, where if you choose a certain film stock, then it's gonna kind of look like that forever. And it's also film stock that people have used in the past. So there's this kind of element of continuity. And I think from a documentary perspective, we didn't want these images to be like too trendy and then fall out of trend um, a couple of years down the line. Um, so we start we started off with that mentality of like let's shoot everything on medium format and 35 millimeter film. Um, let's kind of um, shoot on Kodak Portra 400 so that we can keep the look um, consistent. Um, and so that was more the decision making process for the tools that we used. But I think in terms of approaching the actual shooting process, we made it a point to kind of like talk to these people first for an hour or two hours if possible, depending on the time that was available to us. And I think that was really important because even though we had talked to all these people on the phone before we went down to the Delta, um, I think it was just very important to build that rapport in real life and um, just really hear their stories. And um, you know, everyone that we met, they were like really friendly from the beginning, but at the end of our hour-long conversation, they were just kind of at a different level of um, openness. I think they felt good that they could share their stories with us. And once they had shared their story with us, they were just kind of like more eager uh, to be willing. Um, and so um, once that barrier was broken, I think it was just really easy to kind of um, take their, their portraits, you know, whether it's giving direction and them just feeling more comfortable to, to do what we told them to do. Um, and then for some of the, the other portraits, we um, kind of went to places that were very comfortable to these people. So a lot of the portraits are actually taken at their homes and you know people usually feel more comfortable at home and they're just wearing whatever they would wear on a daily basis. We didn't try to like put too much production into it so that people felt comfortable where they were. Um, for some of them, we went to like their workplace. Um, so for example, Taylor is, is a farmer, um, or not really a farmer, he, his family is um, a family of farmers, but he works at the Department of Agriculture. And so one of uh, his duties is to kind of like go around all these different cotton fields and to examine kind of like the irrigation system. So when we were kind of driving around, um, going to all these cotton fields, it was an environment that he was very comfortable in. And um, he actually like wanted to teach us things because the, like, like that's what he did. Um, and I think because of that element, we were able to open him up where we weren't telling him to do anything necessarily, but he was just kind of like leading the way and he was kind of like explaining things to us. And as we took photos of him, um, I think it just became that they were really natural and that we didn't have to like direct them too much. So yeah, I think that that's kind of the biggest thing. And Andrew, if you have anything else to add. To that. Yeah, I think one thing that just wanted to emphasize was that I think the relationship and kind of trust building process started fairly on in those initial kind of phone conversations that we had with these people. Because going in, um, you know, a lot of people will be upfront and saying that, oh, like, what do you want to talk about? Like, what do you want to know? What kind of questions should I prepare for? Like, what do you guys want to do with this project? So I think being as kind of open and honest with our entire process started that relationship building piece. And so what we wanted to emphasize going into each interaction with um, the people that we met up with was 
that we wanted to chat with them for at least an hour, um, have them tell us about their story and how they kind of ended up in the Mississippi Delta. And as we started building this very kind of organic and authentic relationship, I think it allowed for a certain level of intimacy when it came to the portraits. It allowed us a certain level of comfort as we are, you know, walking around their home or walking in their back porch to be able to, um, as they're telling certain stories, to be able to kind of naturally integrate a portrait um, as they're speaking or maybe taking a quick pause and taking a photo. I think that made it a lot more seamless and kind of effortless. And it wasn't as kind of structured as, okay, let's chat here for an hour and then let's walk around now and then let's take these 10 photos. I think it was kind of um, organized into a very seamless experience, which I think made for um, a very intimate kind of portrait um, series. For sure. By the, by the looks of it, you guys definitely invested into the trust building process. And I understand you guys shot this in October of 2017. Now, was that the whole month? Or uh, I'm just wondering because uh, it seems like you guys have shot over uh, several cities. I was wondering how you guys kind of went about producing that, like logistically. Yeah, so, so I think our kind of organization, our, our structure was, um, so like leading up to that, I would say the, I would say previous three months or so was spent kind of almost organizing and producing the shoot, waiting for people to respond and kind of coordinating a calendar of what our shooting schedule is going to be like, because we were only there for a little over a week. So it wasn't like, you know, we had tons of time once we're there to explore and really get into it. Um, just because Emmanuel had to travel, we had a few shoots booked. And so before, prior to going, we had basically a week block. And with that one week block, we had to map out geographically where all the people um, were along the Delta. Um, and now they're kind of like, certain people are spread out along Mississippi. So we had to make sure all our driving routes were fairly optimal. Um, and so, for the whole seven day span, we basically mapped out, I think three to four interviews per day. Um, and we also allowed room to shoot more landscapes um, of the South because I think that really adds to the context of our story. Um, and so over a course of a week, we basically optimized our route to minimize the amount of driving. Um, and so we, but yeah, so as I mentioned before, having three or four interviews a day and kind of budgeting in time for things like, oh, they invited us to dinner. So we have another kind of intimate session with these guys or someone is treating us lunch. And I think what we quickly realized is that the Southern hospitality is very real. As, as soon as we kind of broke down those barriers and as soon as we kind of built that trust, people opened us with very open arms and almost treated us as if we were family or if we were kind of their grandchildren. Um, and so I think that was a combination of that trust building and also that kind of Southern hospitality. Southern hospitality, it's, it's a real thing, isn't it? Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's, <laughs> it's real, <laughs> it's very real. So aside from this initial challenge of building a relationship with that community, were there any other sorts of hurdles that you guys encountered while producing Mississippi Delta Chinese? 
Yeah, I guess I'm trying to think now if there were any like significant challenges.、Um, I think, I mean, I think like we probably underestimated how far all these like cities and towns are.、Uh, like on Google Maps, we would just think like, oh, it'll be like half an hour to an hour. But then when we got there, it's actually like an hour to two hours.、Um, and so I think it's just like、uh, getting there and like readjusting our expectations and making、uh, room for all those, or, or I guess building in the window of time for all that travel.、Um, I think it, the biggest challenge was just like logistical.、Um, and I think like Andrew and I were saying after the project that we should have had a producer with us. Or someone to just coordinate things for us.、Um, but I think, in terms of challenges, like the biggest challenges were just logisti- logistical.、Um, and maybe like it, it was just trying to get as much information as we could in that limited time that we had.、Um, sometimes we just wish we could have spent like an entire day with one subject because. They could have told us about you know, so many things that were going on in their lives, but we would just have to cut short the interview because we had to drive like two or three hours to the next person and we only had so much、uh, sunlight in a day.、Um, and I think like, just making sure that we were doing these people justice in terms of the stories that they were telling us,、um, we had to be kind of very targeted in the questioning that we, that we gave out.、Um, you know, We would have loved to just kind of like hear everything, but with the limited amount of time, we just had to ask very specific questions、um, that, that, that we wanted answers for. Every interview started out with, like, hey, tell me about your history, tell me about your upbringing, do you have any like interesting memories that come out from your childhood?、Um, and then as they spoke about their experiences, usually there would be threads that sort of came out that we would pull at. And a lot of the questions that we asked were kind of based on. Um, what identity or what their Chinese identity meant to them.、Um, and you know, for a lot of them, they came of age、uh, in a time of segregation.、Um, so they were kind of like this weird like, third group in between the blacks and the whites. And a lot of their ideas about being Chinese were very informed by that.、Um, on one hand, you know, just like with their families wanting their kids to go to school with the white kids and then coming back home、um, where. They would live with、uh, a majority,、uh, in a majority black community because Asians were still not allowed to buy house, homes in、um, predominantly white neighborhoods. And so hanging out with like, black kids growing up and just kind of like still, think, still you know, acknowledging the fact that they're Chinese. So this kind of interesting tension, I think,、um, of not really feeling like they belonged in any community. Uh, but at the same time, having this kind of very small, tight knit Chinese community that they could kind of、uh, be free in and express themselves in.、Um, so, a lot of questions about Chinese identity, a lot of questions about、um, if they faced any discrimination, which you know, a lot of them did.、Um, it was only normal, I think, back then、um, to be discriminated against.、Um, and then just kind of like what their lives were like、um, through anecdotes, through Um, family traditions that they created, or through like interesting things that the Chinese community did to、um, kind of like preserve their culture. And one of it being this like annual dance that was organized by this group called the Lucky Seven,、um, which would basically draw a huge crowd of Chinese people from not just the Mississippi, but from like Arkansas, Alabama,、uh, 
Louisiana, and it was this like big deal where um, every year people would drive for for miles um, to come to this dance, and that's where a lot of people met their future spouses. Um, so super interesting stories like that, um, and then some other people who like decided to become mayor of their town to like fix something that no one else would. Yeah, just kind of a, like a lot of inspiring stories like that. I think we also wanted to tap into not just identity, but identity relative to geography. So like, what were some of their favorite things like growing up in the South? What do they love about the South? What do they hate about the South? Um, and I think speaking about identity relative to that context, relative to that context, um, because I think that's what we are really interested, me and Emmanuel, are as Asian Americans living in New York City um, and me being from San Francisco, we're very used to the identity of Asian Americans in large urban cities. Um, and that identity is very much so one of a model minority um, kind of identity where, oh, as Asians, you work, Asian Americans, you work very hard, you go to a great school, you get a great paying job, either as a doctor or a lawyer, or you work in tech or in banking, um, and you kind of make it. Um, but we wanted to tap into how that was, uh, how that perspective was different in the South and how you don't necessarily have to follow that path to make a contribution um, in your community, in your society. I totally agree with that. I think that's a kind of a recurring theme uh, with Asian American communities, no matter where they reside. I want to ask you guys, what do you think is the biggest point of separation between Asian Americans living in urban areas versus rural areas? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. Um, I think the biggest difference is really just that um, the decisions that people make um, is influenced by their environment. And by that, I mean the kind of jobs that they can get, the kind of education that they will receive, um, the kind of people that they're surrounded by. Um, it really kind of informs their identity and kind of like who they become. And, and I think like, as an example, a lot of the like older generation that we interviewed, um, they were kind of at the mercy of the situation around them in the sense that like they didn't really have the freedom or the mobility to kind of go to other states and find work that they were interested in. Um, a lot of them worked at the grocery store because that was the only choice available to them. Um, their parents started grocery stores um, and you know, like when you're in that uh, family situation as a kid, you're expected to help out. Um, the moment you can start uh, doing some math, like you're behind the register, um, like giving change to the customers. Um, so I think like that was kind of like a big uh, realization that I had, which is that um, people kind of take on roles that are available to them in their environment. Um, a lot of them, and, and that's not to say they st stay in that environment forever. Um, I think there is an interesting uh, difference between the younger generation that's kind of um, a lot of them moving away from the South or at least moving away from more rural areas to um, bigger cities in Texas or like um, Memphis or Jackson, uh, where it's just a bigger city and there are more opportunities available to them. But for the people that um, stick around in the South, um, there is something that that really kind of draws them back in. Um, for instance, one of the guys that we interviewed, he's, his name is Taylor, he's 24 years old, and uh, he identifies as this like fourth generation farmer. And for him, 
he you know can't imagine doing anything else. And I think that's because he you know has just kind of developed the sense of pride that his family ha- has been doing um, the same thing and they're really good at it. Um, and so for him, it's like there's no reason to leave the South when that's the life he knows and that's the life that he really cares about. Um, and yeah, I think that's that's a big difference, which is that like once um, once these people kind of like feel like that that place is home, like the the South, the rural South is their home. There really isn't a motivation to leave um, for anything else. Um, I think there are a lot of people, even in the older generation where, you know, they've sort of made it in life. Um, They're slightly wealthier. They have nice homes and stuff, but they don't really want to move because they have so many like great memories of growing up in the South. um, And they just, you know, really see that place as home, Um, which I think like maybe to us would be slightly surprising. Uh, Maybe to us, we would think that like, as Asian Americans, maybe if you're in the minority, you would want to be with um, other people who are like you in a bigger city. And that's kind of a thing that comes up, doesn't it? Like this theme that Asians only kind of stick to themselves, like that we're insular. But one thing I noticed listening to some of the stories on uh, the website is that some of them actually coped with uh, racism and those other problems they encountered by removing themselves from it. So do you think in a way the rural Chinese and like the urban Chinese kind of adapt in a similar way? Like not a good or bad thing. They just remove themselves from the problem. Uh, Like I just want to hear your thoughts on that. I think as Asian Americans, I think that's a kind of good generalization. But I think relative to the context that you're in, I think if you're in a large urban city like San Francisco, Los Angeles or New York, you are not as likely to kind of be exposed to that very um, blatant, almost racism and discrimination now. I think it, because now it's, um, the racism piece has been so, such a hot topic in society today that I think if it is brought up, it's something that is um, reprimanded by teachers, by parents in those large urban cities. And it's an issue that people are very attentive to versus I think in the South, um, I think, Asian Americans and Chinese Americans specifically are still objected to very kind of blatant racism. And um, just kind of hearing the stories of one of the people that we spoke to, Ryan Kwan, um, basically him saying that, you know, he's bullied and um, physically and emotionally, and he would go up to teachers. He'd, you know, hear other parents talking about the situations and downplaying everything. Um, And so, being in that different context too, I think is unique as a Chinese Americans in the South where, you know, they're almost very used to being called a chink or they're being used to called Bruce Lee or Chinaman um, in a very derogatory way. Uh, but at the same time, a lot of the Chinese Americans still are like, okay, well, I'm, if you don't want me here, I'm just not gonna be here. I don't want to subject myself to any of this tension Um, And so some of the themes and the stories that we heard from um, some of the older generations were basically that, you know, it's fine. If you don't want me here, I still have a, you know, whole community that I can go back to for my family, to my grocery store. I don't really have time to think about if I'm fitting in or being included because after school, I have to go back to my grocery store, help my parents, because if I don't, they're going to whoop me. They're going to hear me spanking. Um, And so 
they had basically their entire life almost structured around them where they didn't have the room to kind of piece together like, oh, I'm being excluded. Oh, like this or that, because they were already part of a very tightly knit community, whether it be their family um, or relatives. So seeing now, you know, what with the, you know, the way the world is right now in in the States and and elsewhere, you know, race is, has always been a kind of a hot button issue, but it's, the discussion about it has kind of come back in, um, like in a new way. And I think this is kind of the case for Asian Americans too. So I want to ask you guys, do you think that for like this next generation of Asian Americans, is there a renewed interest in the history yeah, I think that's a good question. Uh, yeah, Andrew, go ahead. Oh, no, no, go for it. Go for it. I'll add on. Okay. I think it's uh, it's interesting. It's it's an interesting kind of like development for Asian Americans. I think there's, uh, I've noticed at least from watching shows and kind of like listening to other people talk about their journey through um, kind of embracing their Asian American identity. I think a lot of kids start out like trying not to be associated with other Asian Americans because then they'll be like typecast, they'll be discriminated against. Classic example being like if you bring like weird smelling food to school, then people are going to be like, what are you eating? You know, like that's something that has a very strong impact um, for, for you as an Asian American when when you're young. And then I think over time, as you get older, uh, once you care less about what people think about um, your race and like your identity, um, then I think you begin to kind of appreciate more um, like your roots and your culture. And I think this is something that is um, pretty common, I think, in, in a lot of my friends, like as we're getting older, I think we're trying to understand ourselves more um, by kind of going back to our roots. And I think... Yeah, I, I think it, I mean, it really depends on time and place. Um, it depends um, where you live. I think um, places like New York, SF, LA, where um, there are other Asian Americans, it's very easy to embrace it. It's very easy to embrace your identity because there are so many other people like you. I'm not entirely sure what that experience is like if you're living in the South. Um, for the Chinese American com- community in the South, I think it helped that um, there were a lot of people like them in that area um, when they were growing up. So a lot of our subjects, I think, had other people to, to lean on to. But I can easily imagine um, Asian Americans in other p- parts of the rural South where maybe they didn't have that community. And for them, it's harder to embrace their roots because then that means sticking out. That means um, being treated differently. Um, so I think that that does get pretty complicated. It depends on you know where you live. It depends on the era that you grew up in, um, but I think for the most part, there seems to there seems to be this current where a lot of Asian Americans are um, just more open about their identity. And I think um, w- with you know other kind of like racial justice movements or just kind of people talking more about uh, racial matters, I think people feel more comfortable to engage in that. Um, and I think just having more kind of vocal voices will only help um, Asian Americans in general to kind of, um, I guess, talk about it and to almost embrace it. Yeah, and I think that that was kind of one of our goals of this project as well is to almost 
bring together a audiovisual experience for someone either in the South or someone in large urban cities to have something tangible that they can see that almost triggers them perhaps to think more um, on their identity, to think more on their roots, or to even think more about um, when they fam- when their family came here, why their family came here, and kind of understanding more of their family history. Um, and I think it's something that's very easy to trigger when you see a bunch of images and you hear some audio and you hear some quotes about um, basically this other subculture of Chinese Americans living in the South. I think it forces you as an Asian American in a larger city to be like, wow, like these guys have such a strong sense of community and tradition and history as an Asian American in a large urban city, it's easy to kind of forget that when you're surrounded by a lot of diversity. So I think our goal almost for this project is to bring that kind of level of awareness um, to people in kind of larger urban cities and also in um, kind of Southern environments or environments and communities where Asians aren't as prevalent. For sure. It's, I guess it's all about perspective, isn't it? I remember like when I was visiting um, like my family back home, like of all places to visit, I visited the museum and <laughs> there was, there was um, like an exhibit on Chinese Canadians in prairie towns and stuff. I saw a lot of parallels like, you know, between these like, you know, these tight knit communities who basically they're still othered, they're still discriminated against, but they still, you know, they still contribute. Like they're not, um, like they're still serving in the army. Um, I just think like, you know, if only like, you know, uh, more people saw us, like more people in the city and you see like, I guess how big the network is, how rich that history is. Maybe my impression was a lot of the millennial, like Asian Americans and millennial Chinese now, a little more, um, I don't know, every time it seemed like you'd bring these uh, these matters up, they'd always like kind of uh, be a bit dis- dismissive of it. Yeah, so like it seemed like they they were less open to talk about it, but I think projects like this will definitely go a long way in just showing people, you know, an alternative uh, perspective. Yeah, I think um, actually people are more open now than ever for stories like like this. I think it just helps that like the Chinese community in the Delta have like such a rich history and such a strong presence. Um, And also, I think it's also the combination of seeing like this um, Chinese face in a very rural South landscape um, that is almost like kind of it, it surprises you like you don't think that's normal. But I think it's just kind of telling their stories. and really emphasizing the fact that like these Chinese people have been there forever. They're about as American as anyone else. They've made huge contributions to their towns, to their cities. One of them even worked at NASA and was, you know, kind of a part of sending someone to the moon, you know, like that's a big deal. And I think like if more millennial Asian Americans kind of realize that, then they'll realize that they have something to be proud of. and yeah, I think it helps that like we have a lot more sort of role models these days, <laughs> like even like famous people who are Asian, uh, and that gives people um, something to kind of latch onto, to be more interested in their identity, to be more interested in how Asians are represented in the media, um, and I, I believe like that's a really big part of it. Um, the more times you see an Asian American on TV, or like the more you read about stuff like this, it makes you proud to be who you are. And when you, when you reach that point, then you're kind of like more confident to do different things. You're more confident uh, about just your status 
as like an Asian American in this country. Absolutely agree. And um, with that said, and this is going to be my last question here, after finishing a project of this magnitude, are you guys inspired to do more in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely. I think uh, we were we were just reflecting on like 2017. And for me, working on the, the Delta Chinese project was one of the most fun and most fulfilling um, projects that I did. Part of it being that we had complete creative control from start to finish. Uh, we did it because we cared about the topic. Um, and along the way, we met some really interesting people and like we feel more connected to them. Um, so yeah, I think this, having completed this project uh, makes me want to like focus on other di- diaspora communities, not just in the States, but around the world. Um, as a Korean, I'm very interested in the Korean diaspora all across the world. Um, there are some really interesting groups, um, for instance, in Russia and Central Asia that I don't think have received a lot of coverage. That is something that I'm fairly interested in at the moment. Um, but yeah, I think once you finish a project of this magnitude, um, it really gives you a lot of confidence. It makes you think that you can tackle even more projects. And I think um, just realizing that commercial photography will only fulfill you to a certain extent. And then to really experience true happiness, you have to kind of go beyond that and really meet people and try to tell their stories. Um, So yeah, hopefully we'll have more projects in the pipeline. And for myself, I think this definitely inspired kind of a wave of more kind of documentary type photography. I think not only when it comes to um, race, I think I would love to go into more like rural China, kind of going into more of uh, my roots, my family's roots and tapping into certain sub communities or subcultures. Uh, But not only that, but I think subcultures in general within the United States Um, I think would be a super interesting area to tap into, whether it be more um, race or ethnicity based, or even when it comes to like being rooted in sport subcultures. I think the sports realm is something that I'm very interested in and maybe tapping into different areas in the U.S. and documenting some of those stories. I think this kind of project gave me the confidence from seeing how a piece starts from a broad vision and idea to, um, you know, kind of finishing that, wrapping it up, filtering all the selects and the images and actually distributing it out to people. Seeing that whole process was definitely an invaluable one for me. So I definitely can see myself doing more kind of documentary type photography. Awesome. Well, guys, it has been an absolute pleasure for those of you listening in that want to check out their website. You can find it at www.thedeltachinese.com. Thanks again, guys. Awesome. Thanks, Nathan. Cool. Thanks for having us. Anytime. Take care now. If you'd like to hear more stories like this one and more from the world of creative culture and beyond, check them out at makein.com. That's M-A-E-K-A-N.com. Or search for us on your favorite podcast app. 